We are presently studying through the New Testament pages of 1 Corinthians, and we've come to the classic New Testament passage on the Lord's table. How long has it been since you took communion? Perhaps you have some fears about it and can identify with some of the fears our study leader Dave Wurtzen had about this ceremony as a small boy. They used to have a ceremony where about 600 teenagers would gather together in this room and I remember they used to have a table in front and they had a white sheet over the table. Now that contributed very much to the mystery of this Friday night. And I can remember you could sit up on the hill, not in the auditorium, but you could sit out in the woods and look into the auditorium and you could kind of watch from the outside. And I remember being about five or six years old, sitting on a rock, and looking into this group. And they did a very strange thing. They took the white sheet off this table, and this leader took this bread, and he handed it to about 12 guys, and they scattered out all over the auditorium. And everyone got a piece of bread, and they held it in their hand. And then in unison, they'd all take it together. Then they repeated that with a cup of juice. And I remember being a six-year-old, there was great mystery in that, but also I was scared to death. Because in my upbringing in church, I had heard that some people had even died from this meal. And I remember thinking that and knowing that, and I was scared to go in. I remember sitting on the rock, and I watched everybody partake of this meal, of this fellowship together. They called it communion. But I stayed on the outside because I was afraid, because I was frightened. You know, I think there's some of you that aren't six years old, but maybe some of you have some of those same questions, those same mysterious fears about the communion. In some churches, they make it very much of a very uh, mysterious and only a professional can do certain parts of it. In fact, every week in some of the people that I was raised with back in the East Coast, the guy that I played baseball with on Saturday had to be sure to leave in time because they went on Saturday night to cover the sins that they had committed. They cussed during the ball game. They might have punched me out. When, they, when I slid into them on second base, and they would go and cover many of those sins. And they would go by going to church and partaking of a meal, very similar to our meal, only with a lot more elaboration to it. So there's a lot of questions about the Lord's table. In fact, believers down through the centuries have even killed one another over exactly how to partake. In fact, Martin Luther and Swingley, two great Protestant reformers, couldn't agree on the Lord's table and the meaning of it, and it blew the Reformation into two dichotomous groups. And so down through the centuries, there's been people fighting over it, arguing about it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul, as a loving pastor, shares with the Corinthians some of his fears about the way that the Corinthians were partaking of the Lord's table. I think that these verses down through church history have probably been used more illicitly than many other texts in all the Bible. In fact, some of you probably feel when you read these words, whoever partakes unworthily, or that's the way the King James reads, or some of you have a translation, whoever partakes in an unworthy manner, you automatically conclude, well, who could ever be worthy? 
And I never want to partake of communion because I'll never be good enough. And men, I, I would be risking my life every time because I could never earn favor with God in order to be acceptable to Him. In other words, you think that when we partake of communion that the only people that really deserve to partake of that communion are the good people. The people that have it all under control and that never disobey God. And you think that that's what Paul has in mind when he tells the Corinthians, you are partaking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and some of you are sick and some of you have even died because of that. Well, once again, we can illustrate in 1 Corinthians 11 how important it is for you and me together to look at a text in context to come through a book, chapter by chapter, so we can understand in the flow of the book what the Apostle Paul is getting at. And the Apostle Paul spells out very clearly in 1 Corinthians 11 what it means to partake in an unworthy manner and what it means to partake in a worthy manner with deep respect. If you look at verse 17, he begins what he goes on with his discussion about the lady's veil and the head covering. In verse 17... He tells them, in the following directives, in the following commands or exhortations I'm going to give you, I have no praise for you. Now concerning the headgear of the ladies, the Apostle Paul wasn't that uptight about it. The Corinthians were doing fairly well. Probably just a few of the very flamboyant women were doing a little things out of place. But the Apostle Paul wasn't that concerned about it. But this issue, he doesn't have praise for them. He is concerned about what they're doing at the Lord's table. He says, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. Now, that's a heavy statement. In other words, if you gather together with a group of believers, and when you gather together, it's worse when you come together than it is if you just stay away. That church has got problems. The Corinthians had problems. The Apostle Paul said, when you all get together to worship the Lord, you've got a bigger problem when you come together. It would be better if you stayed at home. Now, preachers don't usually talk like that. Most of us are telling you, please get up and come. Apostle Paul says, not your gathering. And he says in the first place, what's his problem? I hear, first of all, that when you come together as a church, I want to clear up the meaning of a word. The word church does not mean when you come together in this building. That's not at all what Paul means. In fact, the word that's used there, when you come together in the church, it means in the gathering of the believers, in the gathering of God's people. Don't ever forget that. As we grow older, there's a tremendous tendency to start to think of the church as a building, as an institution, with all the organization and business and all that kinds of things. Don't ever believe that that's the church. You are the church. And we are the church. You are the gathering together of God's people. We can meet out in a field somewhere. We can meet at a picnic. And we can stop the picnic and begin to share God's word, sing pray to the Lord, and we become the church, the gathering together of God's people. So the Apostle Paul says, when you gather together as a group of God's people, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. The first thing I want you to see from this text is the Apostle Paul is a very wise person. Don't believe everything you hear. If you believe everything you hear, there's guaranteed to be some divisions among us. Now, in chapter 1, we learned that the division was primarily along social lines. In other words, there were a few wealthy Corinthians who had beautiful homes and could gather the whole church together in their home, 
And there were a lot of Corinthian believers, in fact, the majority were very poor. And some of them were so poor they didn't have enough to eat. And there was a terrible disparity. The rich were despising the poor. They weren't sharing. They were just exclusive. They kept the poor out of their selective groups. When this Corinthian church got together, a group of the rich would eat their meal in a separate room, very possibly, and then the poor believers would do the best they could in another part, like out in an open courtyard. You think of of an ancient first century house of being like a, a rectangular home with a big courtyard. And there was an inner room where the rich could gather. Then there was a large open atrium, like a garden area, where the poor could meet. You'll understand some of the terrible conflict that was going on. Somehow, the Apostle Paul found out about this. Very wisely, he didn't tell how. Because then everybody would have dumped on the dear so-and-so, the dear saint that shared objectively with Paul what was going on in the church. But I want you to see that the Apostle Paul doesn't make the problem worse than it is. And we need to learn from that. For a group of believers to be able to share together, in order to live together, you have to remember, don't believe everything you hear. And what Satan tries to do in a church family like ours is to get this person talking, to get this person to add to it, and everybody believes it. And before you know it, it's unbelievable how messed up everything is. We need to remember... Don't believe everything you hear. If somebody brings up a problem in your own family or in the church family, in your business, you can apply it anywhere. If somebody brings up a problem, go directly to the person involved before you do anything. Don't talk to a friend. Don't talk to your boss. Don't talk to an elder. Don't talk to a deacon. Begin by going directly to the person involved. And find out, go very lovingly and find out what's going on. For example, if you were a Corinthian believer and the word came to you, there's a schism in this group. There's real social divisions in this group. Well, don't get up on a public platform and start crying about racism in the local church of Corinth or social injustice. Go directly to the rich people involved or to the poor people, wherever it's coming from, Sit down and say, you're my brother, you're my sister. We belong to one another. What exactly is happening? Why are you hurt? What is wrong? I can remember time and time again, many of you coming and sitting down with me and looking me right in the eye and telling me what's wrong. Now, those conversations are tough. They're hard. But there's love that flows from those conversations. Because time and time again when we learn the truth, when we learn what all of our intent was, when we learn what all of us were after, the Lord can bring healing. You know what? It's hard to get along with one another. It's hard to live together. And the best way to do it is to go directly to people involved. Then if you don't get satisfaction, then you need to start going to people that are responsible for correcting it. Go to people with leadership responsibilities and go with ideas about how to help, how to solve problems, not just bringing out what a problem is. It'll change your life if you don't believe everything you hear. And if you'll learn when you do hear and you pray about it and it won't go away, to go directly to people that are involved 
And then if you don't get satisfaction there, to go to people that are responsible over that particular area. The Apostle Paul did not believe everything that he heard. But the second thing is, he did not quit on God's people because there were terrible problems in God's family. He didn't quit on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit because there were problems among God's people. Look at the problem there was among God's people. Verse 19 says, No doubt there are some differences among you, and these differences have come to show which of you God has approved. That's a very strange verse. The Apostle Paul says that as long as we live in this planet, there's going to be divisions in the church, there's going to be problems in the church, believers are going to get bent out of shape with one another. The Apostle Paul very strangely says, it is in the plan of God, it is part of his sovereign will for this to be the case right now, because by these conflicts, he'll reveal who the true believers are. You say, Dave, what do you mean by that? You see, some of you start gathering together with God's people. You start coming Sunday after Sunday because you're trying to meet your needs. And it does meet your needs. You have friendship. You have social things that you're able to do. You start to get to know people. And the church, the gathering together of God's people, is helping you out. But then you really get to know these people. Like I've mentioned something in the past. You might have a business dealing with a fellow believer right from your church. And the fellow believer wipes you out. Or one of your kids goes over to play at their house. And their kid hauls off and slugs your kid right in the nose. You go over very lovingly realizing that kids will be kids. And the believer just reams you out. I mean, they're angry. And these parents are defensive. They say, how in the world could you say my dear, precious, perfect child could ever have done that to your child? Do you realize it was your child that did that? And boy, the anger starts to flow and there's sparks going. And you know what you decide? I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. Those people are worse than the unbelieving people that I know. I, I can't believe it. Those people are hypocrites. I mean, they say they love Jesus. Look at the way they act during the week. All over this area, I guarantee you, all over this area, there are people who say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Well, why don't you ever fellowship with a group of believers? Why don't you ever gather together? It doesn't have to be on Sunday. Why don't you ever gather with believers? Because I can't stand those people. They're hypocrites. They've hurt me. They've let me down. You know what's happening? They're failing the test. You see, all of life is a test, not of your good works, but of your faith. Because God says in this messed up, sometimes honorary, sometimes problem-wracked group of people called the church. God says they're his bride. God says he's making them into the elite of heaven. And faith says, I'll believe what God says. And what is Paul saying? He's saying that God's going to allow there to be divisions in a church. He's going to allow church boards elders and deacons to get angry with one another. He's going to allow there to be conflict between ministries. He's going to allow churches to have conflict with other churches. He's going to allow all that to take place because he's testing to find out who really believes in him, who really adores him, who's really believing in the finished work of Christ, who has their eyes upon Jesus 
not on just what a group of people can do for them. And I guarantee you, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against those genuine believers. And I can think of a whole bunch of you that have gone through emotional times where there was division, there was schisma, there was problems, but you didn't walk out. You kept coming. Even though it hurt, it was hard, and your feelings were hurt. You kept coming because your eyes are upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face, and you'll be able to handle the things on earth. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. I think it's so encouraging that the Corinthians had so many problems and the Apostle Paul still loved them. Because as I read the Corinthian problems, I examine some of the problems that I've faced in the ministry and I'm not near, I haven't faced near the, the problems the Apostle Paul faced. And he still hung in there and so I think we should as well. And so let's overcome the divisions by keeping our eyes upon Jesus, realizing that they can be a test to our faith rather than a destruction to our faith. But the Apostle Paul goes on and spells out exactly what the problem was when he says, when you come together in verse 20, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat of it, some of you go ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God, remember again, not a building, but do you despise these believers for whom Christ died? You humiliate those who have nothing. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. This is the big problem that was in the Corinthian church. They despised those who didn't have anything. I think I can illustrate the attitude that they had by telling you about when I was in college, I, my roommate and I used to sing with a guitar and duets. And my dad invited us one time to go up and sing in Buffalo, New York at a big youth gathering. And my dad told us to meet him at a, at a big fancy restaurant in Buffalo before the meeting. At that time, I had a 60 Valiant. And I had Mexican blankets up in the back window. It was black, one of those old 60 slant six. 60 Valiants. It was a real bomb. When I got it, it had 175,000 miles on it already, and I put another 50,000 miles on it. Now, I drove up with my roommate, Dave Brown. We had jeans on. It was the 60s. Denim jackets. You know, we were clean. Guitar in the back seat. All this sound equipment. We drove up. There was a Mercedes in front of us. There were Seville's in front of us, and it's 60 value. And the guy that parked the car despised us. I'll never forget it. He got into that car. When we got out, we just acted like we owned the place. We got out, handed him the keys, but I remember him driving away, shaking his head. We walked into the restaurant, and the maitre d' despised us. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. You see, we were not the right class. Sixty valiants don't turn heads. Rightly. They do turn heads, but not the way you want when you go to a fancy restaurant. And we were the scum from the outside that was despised. Now that can happen among a group of believers. We can be like that fellow parking cars or like the maitre d'. When we gather together, we can despise. Some of you can do it. You can look around the room and say, can you? I've seen it happen. A believer will say, did you know who was at church on so-and-so? Did you know who came? Can you believe they have the audacity 
to come to hear God's word taught to our church. Boy, we can fall into that attitude. Then we wonder why unbelievers won't receive Christ. Jesus was someone who received all men. Jesus was someone who accepted all men, who was with all men. When the Corinthians gathered together to have a meal in his honor, to celebrate him, and when they acted like they did, it became their own supper, just to exalt themselves, just to talk about the great meals that the rich could produce. And I can see some dear rich ladies that are saying, boy, did you know what I had? My servants made so-and-so. Isn't this delicious? And boy, I can cook better than my servants because they didn't even cook. They were so rich. My servants cook much better than your servants. And here's poor people out in this open courtyard. They're dying. They don't even have enough to eat. And they look in and the rich believers are drunk as they can be. Now that's a bad problem. So if you think you've been involved in churches that have problems, I doubt that any of you here have ever gone to a church where the bunch of them, all the rich people in the group got drunk at the Lord's table and the poor people were starving. How many of you have ever gone to a church where that happened? Maybe somebody has gone to that, but that is a bad situation. But the Apostle Paul didn't quit on them. He's got a cure. And in his cure, he reminds us of why we're here together he says what we need to do to correct this problem is we need to remember. You see, the way to correct all the problems in God's family is to remember. And we always remember, we always go back to the cross. And the Apostle Paul in verse 23 says, I want you to remember, Corinthians. And as we read these words, we, we prepare our hearts for communion. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed unto you. The only authority that a man of God ever has is what he receives from the Lord, and he passes it on to us. The Lord Jesus, and that's the one who we are here to adore and to honor. The night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Apostle Paul focuses on two things, bread, and he relates that to the body of Jesus, and he says, it's for you. The reason that all of us are here today is because Jesus gave his body for our benefit. The word that's used for there means Jesus gave his body for your benefit. But it also means he gave his body in your place. In the film, The Mission, the key character, De Niro, had slain his brother, had killed him, and it broke his life. He slew his brother over jealousy over a woman, and he brutally stabbed him. He went to a, a monastery and to a mission and he just waited for 15 months. And a priest finally came who cared for him and set up penance for him. And in a moving scene, De Niro carries a large sack of all of his old life, his sword, his armor. He was a mercenary and a slaver. And he carries this large sack 
up Iguazu Falls, which is like Niagara Falls. He climbs up the side of this unbelievably high cliff. And the fellow priests keep trying to cut that sack off. But the idea is that in order to get rid of the guilt, in order to get rid of the pain, in order to be able to get his brother's blood off his conscience, he needs to go through this agony. His feet are bleeding. His body is racked with pain. Time after time, the sack tumbles down the rocks and drags him down. And he falls and cuts himself and you agonize with him. The, the guys want to cut the rope and get rid of the burden. But when they cut it off, he goes back and gets it. Because he's got to do it. Finally, he gets to the top of the falls and the Indians that he had slaved against attempt to kill him. But their leader stops. And one of those Indians that he had hurt cuts the sack away. Moving, powerful drama. Sadly, all the sacks and all your pain and all the agony you will ever bring upon yourself will never pay for your brother's blood. You see, if I slew my brother, brothers and sisters, I can carry sacks up Iguazu Falls from now until eternity. And it'll never bring my dear brother Ron back if I were to kill him. And to think that my pain and to think that my effort could ever atone for the guilt of my murderous life would be to curse the throne of God and to spurn it. You know, I think there's a whole lot of you that have pain in your life. In fact, a lot of the people that I've worked with that have done some very heinous things, some very brutal things, when we got down to the core of what they were doing, they were trying to get rid of the pain. They were so angry. They were so angry at themselves. They were angry at other people. And they hurt so badly, they wanted to get rid of the pain. And many times that anger caused them to hurt somebody else because it's deeply embedded in the human psyche. Somebody needs to pay. There needs to be pain. There needs to be hurt in order to get rid of this terrible agony in our souls and our conscience. That's why Martin Luther went through so much abuse of his body. And why in that theology of penance there's been so much abuse of the human body. You know why we're here together today? Because his body was broken for you. You don't have to carry any sacks. You don't have to abuse your body. You don't have to try to put yourself through agony year after year. Some of you have committed things in the past. Some of you have committed acts that you feel they can never be forgiven. And there's not peace in your life because you're carrying the sack of guilt up. And Paul comes to you and says, his body was slain for you. And that does cut the sack off your back. It does get rid of your guilt, if you believe. And then the Apostle Paul talks about the cup of the new covenant. You say, Dave, what does that mean? In Exodus chapter 24, when Moses enacted the covenant of Sinai, the covenant of law, he slew hundreds of animals. And two million people gathered before him. And I don't know how they did it, but he, 
He sprinkled the blood of these hundreds of slain animals upon the multitudes. And that sealed the covenant of Mount Sinai. Now what did that covenant do? It gave us the most brilliant, the most keen and accurate moral law that's ever been given. But it's a covenant of death. Because the very heartbeat of that covenant is thou shalt not covet. And that's an internal heart condition and we all have it. And so that covenant in Exodus 24, sealed in blood, sprinkled upon the people, was a covenant of death. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord God said we need a new covenant. A covenant that doesn't just put the law on the outside. A covenant that doesn't write my standards on stone. We need a covenant that will write my moral standards right on the heart of a human being. Right inside of them. We need a covenant that will make them a new person. We need a covenant that will make them over brand new. We need a covenant that can be compared to giving them new life. Making them new spiritual people. Those that were dead and guilty and under the condemnation of God. We need a covenant that will make them alive. And at the Last Supper, the Lord Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant which inaugurates, which solidifies, which puts into reality a new covenant. It's the covenant that brings forgiveness and brings a new heart. When the blood of Jesus was flowing on Calvary, when the soldier plunged that sword into his side and outflowed blood and water, the covenant of grace, the new covenant, a covenant that writes God's moral law in our hearts was initiated. That's what we remember today. What does it mean to do it in an unworthy manner? What it means is to be thinking of ourselves. You see, if we gather together today and all we're concerned about is, are my needs met? Am I feeling fulfilled you see this gorging of ourselves doesn't have to just be physical it can be spiritual as well we can be gathering together ask not what this church can do for others but what can it do for me what can this gathering together of God's people do for me that's what was wrong with the Corinthian church focused on themselves and not focused on Christ and on one another some of you say, well, Dave, I'm not worthy to partake. And I want to close by telling you exactly what Paul says makes you worthy to take. You say, Dave, what gives me the right to come to this table? Remember I told you about the parking guy that despised me? Remember I told you about the, uh, the maitre d' that despised me? Someone didn't despise me that day. Dave and I walked in. The room was dark, candlelit. Beautiful, beautiful restaurant. My dad saw me across the restaurant, and he stood up, and with a Jack Wurtzen grin, he'd say, come on over here, Dave, and sit down. He didn't despise me. He didn't care if I had a denim jacket on. You know why? Because I was his son. And because I was his son, and it was his banquet, I had the right to be there. And you have the right, if you are God's child, to partake of the Lord's table, to share together. Now, what are we going to do? 
Why do we have this time? The reason that we have this time is to remember the Lord. What do we do? We remember the fact that he gave his life for us. We remember the fact that his shed blood initiates a new covenant for us. It brings forgiveness. We don't have to do penance. We don't have to carry our sack of guilt. It's all been cut away at Calvary. If you have believed in that finished work of Christ, then you're a son, you're a daughter, and you have the right to gather together. And what do we do? We remember our Lord. We remember him. We think on him. I'll close with this illustration, which I think will focus your mind on what it means to remember him, because Paul uses that phrase three times. Remember him. Remember him. Remember him. When my dad was 75, remember Mary and I flew up to go to my dad's special birthday, the, the, the leadership of World of Life, through a special party for him. We all sat together, once again in a nice restaurant. And at the end of the meal, we all stood up, different ones around the audience, and we shared about my dad. I shared some of the things that my dad has meant to us. The meal was to honor him. My dad's closest friend at the end of the meal was the last person to speak. And Wendell Kempton stood up and he began and he said, you know, there's someone that would love to be with us here today. But she's not here. And Wendell, in a moment of time, captured what every family member was thinking about. But it was too deep to talk about. You see, we were celebrating my dad's 75th birthday. But my mom, that he had lived with for 40 years, was already home in heaven. And she was the one that had contributed so much to his life. And Mary can tell you about hours of anger and working through all the the replacement of having a stepmother and having my dad remarry, which is biblical. There's nothing wrong with it. Those of you that have gone through that will know how hard it is. You know why? Because we don't want to be forgotten. And we all see ourselves in that situation reenacted. Dear Wendell, who had lost his wife, was the one that remembered. And he said Marge would love to be here. And then he talked about the contribution of her life. He remembered the birth of the kids, the way she raised us. And everyone cried, but we remembered. You know, that's what communion is. See, many times we can gather together and we do everything else. We think about whether or not we like the music or not. We think about whether or not the preacher flowed all right. I can think about that. Often I can agonize over, did everything go well? The Lord wants us to get over that. The Lord's not concerned about whether everything goes well. He's not concerned about whether everything is smooth. You know what he's concerned about? Did you remember? Did you stop and get by all the surface and relate to me, focus on me? And then he closed by saying, do this until I come back. As we partake together, we do one of the most powerful things that believers can ever do.
You proclaim the fact that you believe that Jesus died in your place, that he rose again, that you haven't forgotten him. Most of the world has forgotten him, but you have not. And until he comes, we're going to remember. That's what this family is about, a gathering together of people who remember the dear Lord. They remember he gave his life for them. They remember he shed his blood to initiate a new covenant. They also remember it's a future confidence because one day he's coming home and we're going to all be home in a glorious reunion. Maybe you're not sure you're God's child. Right where you're sitting, why don't you say this? Dear Jesus, I confess that I'm a sinner. I admit that I need your forgiveness. I've got a big sack on my back and I've been trying to carry it myself. Will you let Jesus cut it away? He already paid the debt. He paid a debt you could never pay. Let him cut it away. Remember Calvary. 